You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, uh, chapter 16. Uh, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under your seat, page uh, 822 is where you can find that text. Uh, and as you heard Anthony share a little while ago, we are wrapping up this morning, this month, uh, like we do each January, uh, of sermons focused on mercy and justice. And since this year has been different, uh, since we've focused really in on one big topic this year rather than talking about four or five, uh, I thought it might be helpful just by way of introduction to share a little more about how we arrived at fatherlessness and foster care. Uh, We celebrated just about a year ago, we celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, of being a church. Next week is actually our 11th anniversary, so we'll get to celebrate that a little bit next week. Uh, And we celebrated 10 years right after we had finished last year's month of mercy and justice. Uh, So that was a moment as we were preparing to to celebrate 10 years that led uh, to deep reflection about what God has done over this past decade, about what we were longing to see God do more of. And among the, the leaders of our church, one of the deepest longings that we have is that our church would grow significantly as people who show mercy beyond our walls, who show mercy in this, in this region. We certainly have done some of that uh, in the past decade. Uh, but as we have become, especially in recent years, a more established church, it seems to get harder and harder. It seems to just get easier and easier to, to concentrate on the people that God has already brought to our church family and not think so much about the people that we hope become part of our church family, the people in our region and in our world. And so in thinking and praying about what it would look like to grow as people of mercy, one of the questions we reflected on was, who has God brought to this church? Who are the people that, that make up this church family? And, and how should that shape our church's specific pursuit of mercy and our specific pursuit of, of justice? And as we were reflecting on that, it occurred to us that in many ways, we are well-situated to care for vulnerable children. We're well-situated in a lot of ways to do that. Uh, We have, as I'm sure you've noticed, we have a lot of kids in this church. And that means that we're already constantly thinking a lot about kids and about their needs and about how to walk alongside them in developmentally and age-appropriate ways to help them learn about the things of God. We also, in this church family, have a disproportionate number of highly educated, upwardly mobile professionals, which means, which translates to, you're busy. You're busy. Uh, You don't have a lot of time and capacity to add to your life. But what we've noticed is you do have time for your kids. You, You make time and you build your schedule around your kids. We're a church of people, I think in a unique way, in an amazing way, who care very deeply about discipling our own kids. We have a lot of parents that think so intentionally in this church about what it looks like to help our kids learn to love and and to follow Jesus. And that's exactly right. That's that's the responsibility we've been given by, by God. And if you're someone that doesn't have kids, there's a ton of you here that participate in that as a community. A ton of you serve in Liberty Nursery or Liberty Kids or Liberty Students. A ton of you are really involved grandparents or aunts and uncles, or babysitters, or friends. And so you might not have capacity to take on a brand new mercy and justice initiative. 
the question that we were wrestling with is, what if mercy could be folded into things we were already pursuing? What if we opened up our lives and our homes and we brought vulnerable kids into them? What if it wasn't just our own biological kids, but other kids in our region who need moms and dads, who need safe and loving families? Not that that is ever easy, but in a lot of ways, it would actually be a very natural extension of who we are, of the people that God has brought to to this church family. It's a way for us to pursue radical mercy through very ordinary rhythms of of our lives. So we're going to close out our series this morning by looking at Matthew 16. As you'll hear in a moment, these are uh, some famous words from Jesus about the cost of following him. This phrase, uh, wreck your life, if we hear the words, someone wrecked their life, their life uh, that's a, there's a negative connotation to that. And, and some of us ourselves in our own story, a lot of us have people we know and love who have wrecked their lives through things like addiction, destructive behaviors, unwise decisions. What I hope you see this morning, though, is that there's actually a right way to wreck your life. There's actually a right way to wreck your life. If we define life by comfort and ease, if we define the quality of our lives by how little sacrifice is required of us or how little suffering we have to endure, we actually miss out on that which is truly life. To follow Jesus into something harder, to follow Jesus into something more costly will, in a sense, wreck your life. But what we're going to see this morning is that paradoxically, that's the only way to find real life. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Matthew's gospel, chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Living God, help us to hear these words, to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand. And understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow you in all faithfulness and obedience seeking your honor and seeking your glory in everything we do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So this is a text about the cost of following Jesus, costly discipleship. And we're going to spend just the the rest of the time we have this morning looking at two key things, the call to costly discipleship, and then the case for costly discipleship, the call and the case. So first, let's talk about the call to costly discipleship. Uh, If we were to back up a little bit and read before verse 24, the verses leading up to this text 
Jesus is revealing a lot to his disciples about his own identity and mission. And it mainly happens through his interactions with the apostle Peter. So there's Peter's confession. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in this bold moment of truth and clarity, says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. Almost immediately after, though, there's Peter's confusion. Jesus goes on to predict his own death and his resurrection. And Peter says to him, that's never going to happen, Jesus. You're the, you're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. That's, you're never going to suffer and die like that. And so Jesus then turns around and rebukes Peter and corrects him. It's this pretty intense line. He says, get behind me, Satan. And he's saying, Peter, that's how men think. That's how Satan thinks. It's not how God thinks. In, in God's mind, it's precisely because I am the Christ. It's because I am the anointed one that I must suffer and die. Jesus says to his disciples here, in short, before returning to the crown, there's going to be a cross. Before returning to the crown, there will be a cross. And then as we picked it up in verse 24, Jesus continues, by the way, this is not just my calling. It's yours. It's yours. If you would be my disciple, if anyone would follow me, this is your calling too. Now, many of you know this, but it's important to reiterate. In one sense, Jesus' calling is completely unique. Completely unique. He goes to the cross for the sins of the world. He is the substitutionary sacrifice once for all. You and I can never, no matter how much we suffer and sacrifice, no matter what efforts we put forward in our life, you and I could never accomplish what Jesus alone accomplished for us on the cross. But Jesus is not just our Savior. He, he certainly is that. But he's not just our Savior. He's also our example. He's the one we follow. And what he says here is that not just for Peter, not just for the 12, but if who? If anyone would come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. Don't let familiarity with these words desensitize you to their impact. If you've been around Christianity or the church, if you've been a Christian for a long time, this phrase, taking up your cross, has come to mean all kinds of things that Jesus did not mean it to. So you drive used cars instead of new ones. That's just your cross to bear. You know, you're a used car person, not a new one. Uh, You have a neighbor who just gets on your nerves a lot, and we all do, right? We all do. We can't say that. That's my, that's my cross to bear. Uh, you have spotty internet connection. You know, your, your cell service at your house is only one bar instead of four. That's just my cross to bear. No, the cross was a form of execution, a form of execution, and a humiliating and a horrific one at that. Jesus is not here calling you and I to put up with annoyances or difficulties or even inconveniences. He is calling us to die. The Christian life is a death sentence. It's a death sentence. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to be ready and willing to die. And that's true literally, as now for 2,000 and some years, many men and women have paid that ultimate cost of their own earthly life for the sake of following Jesus faithfully. It still happens in many parts of our world today. But as Jesus is saying here, it's also self-denial. It's death to self. Death to our preferences and our priorities. Death to our our comfort. George Mueller, uh, who was a father to a whole lot of fatherless kids in England 
in the 19th century. Opened up orphanages, ministered to hundreds and hundreds of of orphans in England. Uh, He was once asked to share what had motivated his life's work. How, How did he press on and labor so faithfully and sacrificially for so many kids for so many years? George Mueller said this, there was a day when I died, utterly died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That's what death, that's what self-denial, that's what death to self sounds like. Now let's be honest this morning. It is hard to be faithful to this call from Jesus this kind of costly discipleship, if you live in the suburbs. It is hard to be faithful to this call if you live in the suburbs. The suburbs are built for comfort and convenience. That's why they came into existence decades ago. The suburbs exist to make your life and my life as easy as possible. They're built to insulate you from poverty and homelessness and crime and all other sorts of brokenness that happens in our world. Now, we who live in the suburbs and and pay attention and get to know people that we live around, we know the darkness is very much here too. Of course it is. Community master planning cannot evade the effects of sin. Can't out-civil engineer sin. It exists everywhere. But it is hard to effectively combat poverty when you're not around people in poverty, when you're not friends with, when you're not in relationship with, immersed in daily life with people who are poor. And so caring for the fatherless, participating in things like foster care and safe families and adoption and care communities, it's actually a very specific way a church full of many suburban people can blow big holes in the gates of hell. This is the way we uniquely as a church of a lot of suburban people can blow big holes in the gates of hell. This is a way we can push back what is wicked and dark in the world. You want to live away from some of the chaos and the darkness that is more evident in densely packed urban areas? You want to send your kids to schools that poor people could never afford? You want to homeschool your kids because you have the luxury of having a parent or two that has the free time and ability to do that? That is wonderful. Please do that. Please do that. And then invite vulnerable people into your home to do it with you. Bring vulnerable children into your family. Show them some of God's own protection and care in your home, in your family, in your life. Because fatherlessness is such a huge factor in what causes and perpetuates poverty, among all other kinds of social ills, caring for the fatherless can also help us obey Jesus' call to love and care for the poor too. can do both of those things together. Now this is, please hear me on this, this is by no means the only way to be faithful to Jesus' call to costly discipleship. And John Paul and Mariah spoke to this really well before. Not all of us are called to foster care or adoption or any of the specific things we're talking about this month. This is not, we can think of it this way, this is not the only right way to wreck your life. But it is one way. It is one way. And perhaps, I would invite you to consider, perhaps a primary way suburban people like many of us can deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. So that's the call to costly discipleship. Second, let's talk about the case, the case for costly discipleship. After he gives this call, Jesus goes on to build a case. And he says here, even though it's costly, even though it's a death sentence, following him is really the only way to live. 
It's really the only way to live. Verses 25, 26, and 27, maybe you heard this as we read it before. Each of those verses begins with the word for. And so each verse is building a case. It's laying out another reason why it makes more sense, why it is right to deny yourself and follow him. As we just briefly look at each of those three verses, I'm going to use the words gauge, gain, and glory. So verse 25 is about our gauge. And what Jesus is saying here is on our own, we have the wrong gauge on what really constitutes life. We're prone to to define it the wrong way. See, rather than deny ourselves, we want to indulge ourselves. That's how we define life. Rather than taking up our cross, we want to take up another hobby. Rather than following Jesus, we want to follow our heart. And in trying to save and preserve our lives and trying to keep these, these temporary fleeting mists of earthly lives as comfortable and easy as possible, we actually find ourselves at risk of forfeiting eternal life. There, there is something infinitely worse than living a costly, hard life for Jesus. And that is to lose your real life, to lose your eternal life. It's really important for us to see here, though, in verse 25, the right way to wreck your life is for Jesus' sake. He says there, whoever loses his life for my sake, his sake, not your own sake. I love how Russell Moore wrote about this in his book. He said, we live in an era where commitments have become opportunities for narcissistic self-realization. We live in an era where commitments have become opportunities for narcissistic self-realization. In other words, we can do costly and hard things for Jesus, or we can just say we're doing it for Jesus, but really be doing it for ourselves. And I would say to you this morning, friends, please do not adopt or foster in order to create a meaningful life for yourself. Do not do this in order to have an interesting experience. Do not do this in order to write a cool story for your life. Do not destroy your marriage to do this. Do not cover up issues that you are experiencing in your life that God has brought to light in your life and that you haven't actually dealt with yet. This is a calling. It is not a cover-up. Don't do it for your sake. As Russell Moore continues, there is one thing worse than someone called to adopt not adopting, and that is someone who has no calling or equipping to adopt doing so. So lose your life for Jesus' sake. Wreck your life for his sake, not for your own. Verse 26. Verse 26 is about gain. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? There have been some some really bad trades in history. The one that always comes to mind for me is the Red Sox traded away Babe Ruth for next to nothing. And the Yankees won like seven World Series after that, you know, with Babe Ruth on their team. Bad trade. But the worst trade in the world is to forfeit your soul in order to gain something else. All of the riches and comfort and free time and power, whatever it might be, None of that is worth losing that eternal, immortal part of you we call the soul. And so I want to ask you this morning, is there anything that you would trade for your soul? Is there anything you would trade for your soul? I think every single person in this room would say, well, no, of course not. The question is, but are you? But are you? In practice, is your life devoted to some other kind of earthly gain? instead of that treasure hidden in a field, as Greg was teaching our kids about a little while ago. 
like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, we're meant to be able to say with a straight face, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There is nothing more valuable than your soul being known by Jesus, than you being found in him. Can you count everything else as loss compared to that? Now, let me just say here a quick word about wisdom and stewardship. Wisdom and stewardship. Uh, We are called by God to be wise in our decisions in life. We're called by God to be wise in our pursuits. Uh, And we're called to be really good stewards of all that God has given to us, the stuff that he's entrusted to our care. Here's the thing. If you push hard enough on the wisdom and stewardship buttons, you will always talk yourself out of costly discipleship. You will always talk yourself out of mercy. You will never wreck your life in the right kind of way. If you pushed hard enough on the wisdom side of things, on the stewardship side of things, no one would ever plant a church. No one would ever choose to to forego money or time or vacations or a promotion in order to create margin in their life for mercy. No one would ever welcome a child who is not biologically their, their own into their home. But it does not profit us to gain the whole world and lose our souls. It doesn't profit us to, 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 to say to God, hey, God, look at all my wisdom. Look at all my stewardship. If we have not also followed Jesus into costly displays of, of his mercy. In the end, that just becomes a more subtle way for us to gain the world but lose our soul. So the case that Jesus builds here for costly discipleship is about our gauge. And it's about gain. And then third and finally, verse 27, it's about glory. This life that Jesus calls us to is not worth it unless it's the path to real glory. If Jesus' death on the cross is the end of the story, and if following him into death is the end of ours, then the case for costly discipleship falls apart. That's why Paul writes, if that's the case, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like, let's just have some fun with this short life that we have. But of course, it's not the end of the story. Glory is the end of the story. On the other side of death, there's resurrection. On the other side of this cross that Jesus is going to and calling his followers to, there's a crown. And so Jesus doesn't just go to the cross. He rises from from death. He ascends to heaven. And as he goes on to say to his disciples here in verse 27, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again in glory. And as he continues there in verse 28, some of his disciples will even live to see a foretaste of it. If we'd kept on reading, we would have seen in Matthew 17, six days after saying these words on the Mount of Transfiguration, three of them did. Three of them got to see Jesus in all his glory. For any of us who trust in Jesus' finished work, for any of us who follow him, Jesus' glory is our glory. It's our glory. It's imparted by him to us. It is repaid, as he says here. It's rewarded to us. Elizabeth Elliot, if you know anything about her life certainly knew something of costly discipleship. She lost her first husband. He was killed by uh, some men in Ecuador when they were missionaries serving in Ecuador. And she said this once about discipleship. We pray that if any anywhere are fearing that the cost of discipleship is too great, that they may be given to glimpse that treasure in heaven promised to all who forsake. And the reason Elizabeth Elliot could say that is because all throughout the Bible, 
We have things like what the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter eight. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what? With the glory that is to be revealed in us. And as I was reading that text this week, it struck me. Paul says those words immediately after writing something very specific. You know what it is? It's right after he talks about our own adoption as sons and daughters of God. Though sin has made us orphans, God has become our father. We have become through the work of Jesus, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Paul says there in Romans eight, that if we suffer with Jesus, we will also be glorified with him. In other words, it's not just Jesus as the son of God, but it's all of the children that are adopted into the family of God. They will both bear a cross and then wear a crown. For us, having God as our father means we follow Jesus, not only into death, not only into the suffering, but also into his glory. Men and women, in a very real sense, Jesus Christ wrecked his life to display the wideness of God's mercy. And this he did for you. This he did for you. It did not look like wisdom. It looked really foolish, actually. It did not look like good stewardship. God came, the one time in human history that God came in the flesh He lived for 30 years in obscurity. He ministered for three and he was done. That does not look like good stewardship of an incarnation. But through that costly obedience of Jesus, we are saved. We are adopted into God's family. Now, as God's children, we must follow Jesus and wreck our lives too. And so for Jesus' sake, for that which is truly life and truly gain and for the glory that is to be revealed in us, Let us wreck our lives to display the wideness of God's mercy to this world. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you this morning, Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We praise you that you did wreck your life, that you offered it up in order to display the mercy of God, the wideness of that mercy to us. And by it, by trusting in that work, Jesus, we are saved. We ask that you would help us to follow you into that, to count the cost and then to pay it because it's worth it. Help us as we consider the things that we've heard this month. Would you, by the the discerning power of your spirit, would you lead and guide us? Would you help us for your sake, for your sake to wreck our lives in the right way, not for our own, Would you help us to know what you are calling us to specifically in these different opportunities to bless and care for and serve vulnerable children, vulnerable families in this region. Guide us into that. But as we do that, point us ever back to your finished work, to the mercy you have shown us. Prepare us to rejoice in it now again as we come to your table. Let me pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.